Those are wonderful prayers for us to sing as God's people together, uh, thinking about our desperate need for that which only God himself can do. And as has been said, tonight I'd like to direct your attention to the theme of revival, or more specifically, specifically to praying for revival. And I am motivated in this because of some conversations and things that have been going on in my life over the last six or seven months or so in connection with some other churches and other pastors. I'm excited about uh, what I hope God will do. Of course, we don't have God in a box and, and we must always bow to him, but he tells us that he, he loves to be uh, petitioned. He loves to be sought. And in conversation with different men um, throughout North America, uh, pastors that I've known for a long time, God seems to be stirring up several to um, unite together in congregations and trying to get others to come together to pray for revival. Uh, this is something that the leaders of our church have been talking about for the last year or two, and we announced back in the spring calling our congregation to enter into a, a season of prayer and fasting for revival, and we are now committed to praying the first Wednesday of every month, uh, setting aside that day as a day of prayer and fasting, and um, it's been a, a sweet time in our church for those Wednesday night gatherings when we're typically together anyway, but this has just given over to praying that God would revive his work. So we're early in that, and the church at Cape Coral Grace Baptist Church, but in talking to some other uh, pastors about it, Jeff Johnson, one down in Arkansas, not far uh, from here, he had led his church to set aside a day in June for the same purpose, and then talking to Paul Washer, who was also involved with some pastors, not just here, but in different places of the world, Joel Beakey, who's up in Michigan, also uh, has had these kinds of thoughts going on in their own congregations. And so that has resulted in a global day of prayer for revival, a global day of prayer for revival that has just been announced. Monday, I think, was the first time it's gone public. And you can find out more information about it at globalprayerforrevival.com. A website's been set up, and uh, the last time I checked, I think there were churches from, I think it was like 13 different nations that had already signed on saying, yes, we will set aside October 3rd or 4th, those days around the world, so it's different timing, and give that over to praying for God to come in the power of his spirit to revive his work here in the midst of these years. And so I would encourage you to go to that website, check that out. You can sign up individually. Churches can sign up as well. But certainly, uh, we need revival. And I've discovered over the last several years that whenever I talk about revival, that I, I can't assume that everyone understands what I mean by that word. Uh, we have to be careful in defining it. I, I grew up in a Baptist church, Southern Baptist Church in Beaumont, Texas, and we had what we called revivals every spring and every fall. We'd invite in a guest speaker and give over, uh, originally it was like two weeks, uh, every night we would be meeting, and then it got cut to a week, and then Monday, you know, Sunday through Wednesday tends to be what it was uh, before I, I left town there. And there would be uh, emphasis on preaching and praying in the church leading up to it and then those days of protracted meetings. And, and those have a place, and God's used those, and 
Uh, I've had wonderful experiences with God in those times, and people have been converted uh, during those times. But that's not what I mean. It's not what's meant historically by the word revival. Uh, You can't plan a revival and put it on the calendar in the terms that I want to set before us tonight from God's word. What we're concerned about and, and what hopefully God will stir up many, many people around the world is to come together to pray for him to do something which only he can do, which he has done in the past, and we have reason to hope and believe that he will do it once again. Revival is the accelerated work of God among his people and in his world in ways where what he normally is doing is just amplified. So when we're praying for revival, we're not asking God to do something that he doesn't typically do in terms of his saving work, his sanctifying work, his guiding, his strengthening people to put sin to death. We're we're asking him to do it fast, to do it intensely, because that's what revival is. It's God doing what God does fast. In times of revival, people are converted some of whom very often have been prayed for for years and years or decades even, and churches are sanctified. Uh, People begin to see things more clearly in an instant that they haven't seen clearly over their lifetimes. It's the normal work of God intensified, and we ought to be praying for that because God can do wonderful things in revival in short order that we might be working for for all of our lifetimes. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher of the last century from Wales who spent most of his ministry at Westminster Chapel in England, in London, he said that God can do more during a time of revival in a minute than can be done in 50 years. And I don't think that's an exaggeration. The, The history books tell us of things God has done where whole communities, even towns, are transformed. Uh, Scotland is a nation that is described as having been born in a day under the powerful ministry of God's Spirit, owning the preaching of John Knox and others who were with him in those days. I like what one writer has said about revival. He says it's God's quickening visitation of his people touching their hearts, deepening his work of grace in their lives. So revival is the sovereign work of God that he sends down. It is not anything that we can work up. But God does revive. He has revived, and he has done it in response to the prayers of his people. There's story after story historically of this happening. The modern missionary movement was born in revival. In 1794, there were five men in the Northampton area of England uh, who committed together to meet every other month for one day and to pray for the revival of God's work in their day. And so you had Andrew Fuller and William Carey, uh, John Ryland Jr., Samuel Pierce, and John Rippon. John Rippon, I think, was the fifth one. And they would meet. And you can read the accounts from their diaries, and sometimes they would, they would meet, and then you, Fuller would say, 
It was like the heavens were brass today. We prayed, but we had no sense of God's presence with us. But they did that for eight years, for eight years, from 1784 to 1792, when things finally began to break. And the result was that those men, their churches, and other churches got together, and they sent William Carey to India. And Carey left England never to come back and gave his life to bringing the gospel to India in a way that transformed that society and other societies around uh, that nation in Asia. And there's stories like that that are readily available to us in history. Well, for this purpose of thinking about revival and provoking all of us to consider what it is we need and what it is God has done and what God might be well pleased to do in the future, I want to direct our attention to Psalm number 85. Psalm number 85. Let me read the whole psalm, but I really just want to focus on verses 4 through 7. Psalm 85, verses 4 through 7. You'll see in the title that it's described as, To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And then it begins, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. And then here is the beginning of the text I want to focus on. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. What we see in those middle verses, verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, is that revival praying desperately pleads with God for God to do that which only he can do. It's a desperate pleading knowing that God is the only source of help that we need. We can't be sure of the historical setting of Psalm number 85. It doesn't tell us the circumstances out of which it was written. But the title does tell us that it is a Psalm of the Sons of Korah, uh, one of the 11 Psalms in our Psalter that have that designation. And what that means is most likely that it was composed by the musical descendants of Korah. Now, if you know anything about the story of Korah, he was a man who led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron after Moses had led the people of Israel out of the bondage in Egypt into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And God judged Korah and those who were with him by opening up the earth and swallowing them alive. An earthquake to absolutely destroy Korah and those who were with him. Now isn't that amazing that Korah goes down in history as a rebel against God and the work of God. 
And here are Korah's descendants writing praise to God and leading God's people to cry out to him for help. This is a great testimony that we shouldn't just kind of glide over lightly. Our ancestry does not dictate our legacy. It doesn't matter where you have come from, what your people were like. The grace of God is able to overcome even the most desperate situations in our family lineage. The lineage from which we descend need not determine the heritage that we leave behind. Here are these sons of Korah who have left inspired writings for us in the Word of God that train our hearts how to approach Him. God's grace can always start a new chapter in our family history or in our own individual lives so that by His grace, our children and our children's children can come to know the love of the Savior and sing the praises of our great God, just as the sons of Korah were able to do. Some have speculated that this psalm may have been written by those first Jews who returned from exile to Jerusalem after they had been in captivity in Babylon. Persia overtook Babylon while the Jews were in captivity there. And then God raised up King Cyrus, the king of the Persians, to issue a decree to send the Jews back to their homeland and to see Jerusalem rebuilt. Ezra chapters 1 through 6, as well as the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, describe the first 25 years or so of those Jews who returned from exile to Jerusalem. And there were some old men among them, men who remembered the glory of Solomon's temple that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed. And as the foundation was being laid for the new temple, these old men realized this temple isn't going to be as glorious as Solomon's temple. And they began to weep. And they lamented the fact that it was their sin, the sin of their people, that had resulted in this work of God in judging them and seeing that temple destroyed. Whether or not that's the exact setting from which this psalm comes, it does fit the situation that God's people find themselves in at various seasons throughout history. Such times are marked by spiritual lethargy, by spiritual apathy and superficiality, by large numbers of people who take the name of the Lord upon their lives but do not have the work of the Lord in their hearts, by times of a lack of personal holiness among God's people, finding pleasure in sin, both secret and public, a lack of concern for the glory of God and for the honor of God, satisfaction to be hypocritical, The kind of hypocrisy that quickly judges others for shortcomings and fails to deal ruthlessly with our own sins. Times when we are quick to make excuses for our own sin and justify clear disobedience to God in our own lives because we think our situations are special. We know, we know what God says, but I've got these considerations, I've got these realities I've got to deal with. And so we don't take what God says very seriously. Scripture refers to such times as these. It calls them in Ephesians 6.13, the evil day. 
or 1 Timothy chapter 3, or 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, as seasons of difficulty, times of difficulty. Those are times when vital godliness among God's people is the exception rather than the rule. Those are times when seeking pleasure is more important than seeking prayer, when sin is coddled more than it is killed, when gathered worship is a matter of convenience rather than conviction. When such times like that come in the life of a society, a nation, or a congregation, what seems to be happening is that evil triumphs over righteousness. Truth, as the prophet puts it, falls in the streets. That which is evil is called good. That which is good is called evil. And God's law is not only rejected, it's ridiculed. And more than that, in some cases, it's regarded as hateful altogether. Well, when God's people find themselves in such situations, in such seasons, and finally begin to wake up and see things the way that they actually are, when they begin to look honestly at the world around them and honestly at their own lives collectively as a church or as a congregation or as an individual believer and come to terms with what is going on, it's inevitable that there will be humiliation, that there will be sorrow, that there will be grief because you can't be honest about those things without coming to a stark realization, a realization that shapes everything else, a realization that eclipses every other concern. It's the realization that we need God. We need what only God can do. That things are in such a disarray that unless God helps us, we will not be helped. That we can continue to do all that we know to do, we can continue to do the best that we can, but without God coming in power, all of our efforts will be in vain. Our troubles are multiplied when we realize God has withdrawn his hand of mercy from us. But our troubles can be overcome when we realize with urgency and desperation that what we need is for him to arise and help us. When we see that and believe it, we let ourselves feel it, we will pray. And we will pray for God to revive us. And we will do so with desperation, knowing that God alone is the only source of help that we need. I want to point out three things from those middle verses in Psalm 85 for us to consider tonight. The first thing I want to see is in verse 4, that revival praying remembers what God has done. Do you see how it says this in verse 4? Restore us again. Again. They want their situation to be reversed based upon what they remember God has done in the past. And they are very much aware of God's work in the past. That's the first three verses. Uh, they recount to him in prayer, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. What God had done in the past that they knew, they're now remembering. And that's the standard by which they measure what is going on in the present. They, they look rightly, honestly, at his work in days gone by 
And they see what is going on now, and they say, oh God, what once was is no longer. Revive your work again. Do it again. Do it again. They know that whatever is going on in the present life of the nation, and we don't have specific descriptions of it, but they know that they're under divine judgment. All of this has happened to them because God has withdrawn his favor. And that's what provokes their prayer. They remember what was. They honestly see what is. And so they cry out, Lord, restore us. They want to be restored. The basic meaning of that word restore means to turn or to return. It's one of the most common verbs that is found in the Old Testament. I think it's the 12th most common verb in the Old Testament. Over a thousand times you'll find this in the Old Testament scriptures. And what they're asking God to do is to so work that they will be returned to more spiritually healthy days, to be made more faithful, and they know that God must do it. We see this principle of remembering what God has done in the past and then using that to measure what is going on in the present provoking prayer to God to restore his work. We see that principle throughout the scriptures. One of the clearest places is in Psalm number 44. Psalm number 44. I encourage you to look at that psalm and you can see it's more clearly elaborated there the memory of what once was and then the honest assessment of what is and the motivation then to cry out for God to do something. So in the very first verse of Psalm 44, there's this clear articulation of what once was. Oh God, we have heard with our ears and our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor by their own arm did they, were they saved, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. So Lord, we know the great stories of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob. We know what you did in times under King David. We, we know, we've heard, our fathers have told us. And we look back at those glory days and it's not because they were so strong or so smart. It's because you shined your light upon them. You did it. But then in verse 9 of Psalm 44, here begins the honest assessment of what is. That's what was. But in verse 9, now you have rejected us. You have disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You've made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You've made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You've made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. Lord, we're your people. We're living in a world where folks ridicule, disregard. They don't care about you or your people. There was a day when your people were strong. There was a day when your people made a difference. And that day is radically different than this day. Lord, we're living in a day when your people are the butt of jokes by late night TV hosts, by politicians who think they know better. It wasn't always that way, Lord. You did 
mighty things for our fathers. And today, we don't see anything commensurate to that. Well, remembering what was and honestly assessing what is leads them to cry out to God in verse 23 of Psalm 44. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Don't you just love that kind of raw language, God sleeping? God doesn't sleep. But for all practical purposes, it seems like he's sleeping. So, Lord, we're pleading with you to arise. Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. One of the benefits of reading about Christian history, or just history in general, is that it helps to orient you in thinking rightly about the present. You can see things that were done in the past, and especially in Christian history, you can see the way God provided for, guided, disciplined his people in the past, and it helps you to think more soberly about the present. And I love studying the history of revivals. By God's grace, I was given the opportunity to spend quite a bit of time early on in my pastoral ministry in doing that, and reading about accounts when God worked fast and intensely. Uh, it, it just stirs the soul. It gives hope. Times when God renewed his church and brought new converts into his kingdom in rapid ways. And it's happened many times in history. One of my favorite accounts is what God did in the early part of the 20th century in Wales. In 1903 in Wales, the country was marked by moral degradation and widespread coarseness. By 1904, largely through the preaching of Evan Roberts and the pouring out of God's Spirit on that nation, something occurred that historians look back upon and call the Welsh Revival. Within a year, over 100,000 people were converted. Within a few months, 70,000 people were converted. And the effects on the churches in Wales and the society of Wales were dramatic. Coal mining was a major occupation, especially in South Wales at the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And the mines were notorious for their wickedness that took place in them. Miners bred these short, stocky ponies to operate in the mines, and they trained them with brutal beatings and with blasphemous commands and curse words. Well, as those miners began to listen to the word of God, and hundreds of them, and then thousands of them were converted, it affected the work in the mines. The pit ponies would no longer do their job because the miners would no longer blaspheme God in giving them commands. They had to retrain the pit ponies so that the work of coal mining could continue to go on. Judges in Wales, who were responsible for presiding over criminal courts, found themselves with nothing to do because the crime rates dropped precipitously. One newspaper report of the time described it like this. Truly God has visited his people in Wales. It's not a question of one town being awakened, but the whole principality being on fire. Profanity is silenced. Public houses deserted. Theaters are closed. Betting books burned. Football teams disbanded. There, there was a notorious outbreak of gambling over Welsh football uh, in the late 20th, early 21st, or um, early 20th century, late 19th century. Police courts are idle. Family feuds are pacified. 
Old standing debts have been paid. Sectarianism has been submerged. The family altar re-erected. This is a newspaper report. This is not a, a Sunday school report. The Bible st- began to be studied with a passion. It certainly is a wonderful record. G. Campbell Morgan, who was the predecessor of Martin Lloyd-Jones at the, um, the Westminster Chapel in London, he heard about the revival in Wales. And, and rather than just take the reports that he heard, he actually traveled to Wales. And he went around different towns, and he talked to people on the street. He attended various church gatherings. And when he got back, this is the report he gave to his congregation. If you and I could stand above Wales looking at it, you would see fire breaking out here and there and yonder and somewhere else without any collusion or prearrangement. It is a divine visitation in which God, let me say this reverently, in which God is saying to us, see what I can do without the things that you're depending on. See what I can do in answer to a praying people. See what I can do through the simplest who are ready to fall in line and depend wholly and absolutely upon me. You know, we who live in the United States have reasons to praise God for revival. Our nation was born out of revival. In the middle of the 18th century, God stirred up people in the United Kingdom and in North America, in the colonies, to seek him, to pray for him, pray to him to come and work powerfully among them. He raised up George Whitfield, who crisscrossed the ocean 13 times, coming over here to the colonies to preach and preaching back throughout the United Kingdom. And John Wesley as well joined him in that effort at times. Jonathan Edwards, the greatest theologian, the greatest mind that America has ever produced, was pastoring in New England, and God used his preaching to stir people up and to bring revival to these colonies. Throughout the late 1730s and into the 1740s, what happened in churches in the colonies of America was a great fear of God fell upon even those that were not Christians. Those who didn't bow the knee to Jesus nevertheless were affected by the widespread running of the gospel and bringing conversion throughout those colonies. Such that in the decades that followed when Declaration of Independence was made and the American Revolution began and the war took place, God spared this nation some of the bloodlust that was seen in France not long after. The difference, the only difference that I can see, the most significant difference, is that France had not been blessed with the revival that God had blessed our colonies with. And so we have, even in those founding documents of our nation, a recognition that nature and nature's God is behind everything that we have experienced. Even those who were not evangelical Christians had a fear of God, had an awareness of God that informed how this nation was to be established. If we're going to pray with desperation and urgency for God to revive his work, then we're going to have to know something of what he has done in the past before we can plead for him to do it again. So revival prayer remembers what God has done. 
But then secondly, revival prayer also admits what God is doing now. And we see this in verse 4, the words of indignation, verse 5, anger. The prayer sees God's hand in their present difficulties. Again, we're not told what specific things are going on in the life of God's covenant people at this time. But what we are told is full of instruction. Do you notice how the psalmist assesses the problems? He says, it's your indignation, your anger. Now, what's going on here? He's talking to God and saying, God, what we are experiencing that is detrimental, that is negative, is because you're indignant with us. It's an outbreak of your anger against us. This psalm realizes that all their problems are ultimately due to God. And only God can help. Revival praying refuses to focus on secondary causes. Secondary causes. The immediate cause may be the enemies that have overthrown the nation. The immediate difficulties that we see, the immediate causes of difficulties we see, might be because of a pandemic that just ran crazy. It might be because of corrupt politicians that are acting tyrannically. There's any number of secondary causes, immediate causes. But ultimately, ultimately, if we're going to pray for God to revive his work, we cannot focus on those secondary causes. We've got to focus on the God who is ruling and overruling in and through them. And that's what this psalmist does here. These things that they were experiencing indeed had legitimate secondary causes. But what is always far more important for God's people to recognize is that he rules supreme over all secondary causes. God himself was behind the diseases and the devastation. God himself sits enthroned, ruling his world, even when wickedness runs rampant. And that's true in both the natural world and it's true in the moral world. When natural evil breaks out in hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes, we must never think that somehow God is in heaven being caught by surprise. When moral evil breaks out, in mass shootings and widespread godlessness that is legislated, we must not think that somehow God sits in heaven with his hands tied. The psalmist cries out in desperation because he knows that no matter how culpable the secondary causes might be, God and God alone is the ultimate cause of all their difficulties. Again, look at these words. Verse 4, put away your indignation toward us. Rhetorically, he asks in verse 5, will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? This perspective, without accusing God of evil in any sense, this perspective has characterized the faithful people of God throughout history. We see it in Job. The devil had to get permission from God. He could not do one thing to Job, to Job apart from God's permission. And when God permitted him 
to take everything that Job had, just don't touch his life. And Job lost his wealth. He lost his children. He lost his status. You remember what he said? The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When the devil got permission to afflict Job with sickness, Job maintained that same perspective. Read the 10th chapter of Job, and you'll see how he cries out in his complaint to God, to God. The devil, we know, Job didn't, was intimately involved in that. And so we could say the devil did that. That's true. But the devil only did it at God's permission. And Job knew that. So Job directs his attention to God just as this psalm does. Hudson Taylor was a British missionary who spent the last half of the 19th century preaching the gospel in China. He established what is still known today as the China Inland Mission. And he understood this lesson very well. One of his biographers tells how Taylor's refusal to look at secondary causes not only stirred him to pray urgently and desperately for the work of the gospel in China, but he said it also kept his heart at peace. It caused him that no matter what happened to him, to be satisfied with God and to be content that God was working. There was an article that Taylor wrote about this very point on the book of Job. And listen to what he says at one part of that article that highlights this principle for us. Hudson Taylor writes, Even Satan did not presume to ask God to be allowed himself to afflict Job. In the first chapter, in the 11th verse, he says, Put forth thine hand now and touch his bone in his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. Satan knew that none but God could touch Job. And when Satan was permitted to afflict him, Job was quite right in recognizing the Lord himself as the doer of these things, which he had permitted to be done. Oftentimes shall we be helped and blessed if we bear in mind that Satan is servant, not master, and that he and wicked men incited by him are only permitted to do that which God by his determinate counsel and foreknowledge has determined beforehand should be done. Come joy or come sorrow. We may always take it from the hand of God. Well, there are lots of pastoral implications of that insight, and I'm going to resist the temptation to try to draw a lot of them out. But let me just quickly say, brothers and sisters, by remembering this and focusing on God whenever things are going well in your life, you will be spared much difficulty that comes with pride in thinking, look at what I've done. And when things are going poorly in your life and you're suffering and you're having to live through experiences you would never choose and you don't understand why they've come to you, and the temptation is to look at what this person has done or what that person didn't do or what these circumstances brought into your life, and rather than being obsessed with those secondary causes, if you can lift your eyes to God, then you will find your heart being stilled because the God who rules and overrules in all the affairs of your life, though you might not understand why he would allow or bring certain things into your life that have created so much difficulty for you, you can keep reminding yourself, this is the God who gave up his son for me. 
This is the God who loves me with an everlasting love. This is the God who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for me. How will he not also with him freely give me all things? And the things that you don't understand will not be able to rob you from the things you do understand. The things you don't want and wish were not there will not undermine what God has shown you and given you in his son. And you'll be able to live with the unanswered questions over here because of what God has certainly shown you in giving up his son to save you. That's what Hudson Taylor understood. That's what calmed his soul. His soul. The psalmist knows that the sorrows, the trials, the loss, the spiritual deficits that Israel is facing are ultimately because God, their God, is judging them. This is God's judgment upon them. And more than anything else, what they need is for God to come and help them. People ask me periodically if I think God will judge America. And I say it with no delight. I say it soberly. God is judging America. We are a nation under judgment. Read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, where Paul describes what it looks like when the wrath of God is being poured out on all unrighteousness. God's judgment doesn't always come in fire and brimstone from heaven. God's judgment also comes when he gives people up to their own wicked desires, which is what we read in Romans 1, three times. As people begin to exchange the worship of the creator for the worship of the creature. They begin to exchange natural passions for what the Bible calls unnatural passions. Men doing shameful things. Men doing sinful things with men and women doing sinful things with women. Things that ought not even be mentioned. And the Bible says God gave them up. Gave them up. He gave them up. He sees the wickedness and it's as if he says, okay, I'll remove my restraining hand from you. And people run further down that road of rebellion. And God says, okay, I'll remove even more restraint from you. What's going on there? What's going on is you have people, as we have in our nation today, parading about saying, look how free we are. Look, we could do whatever we want to do. We can be whatever we want to be. And nobody is in charge of us. And what they don't understand is that in their supposed freedom, God is actually giving them over to the slavery of their own sin. And they're parading around, dragging ball and chain behind them, enslaved in a way that will take them to an everlasting place of damnation unless God in his grace and mercy comes and sets them free. The psalmist knew that God must help. We need to learn that only God can help. We need to return to God and we need to plead with him to restore us. 
Revival prayer remembers what God has done. It recognizes what God is doing. Thirdly, revival prayer pleads the honor and mercy of God. This is verses 6 and 7. I love this. Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Do you see what the psalmist is doing here? He implicates God's honor while pleading for God's mercy. See, God's honor is at stake in what is taking place. He says, revive us so that we might rejoice in you. God deserves to be praised. And praise is that which we do for that which we enjoy. And if we're going to enjoy God genuinely, we cannot help but praise God because praise completes our enjoyment of God. So if God's people are not rejoicing in Him, not living lives centered upon Him, not being submissive to Him, not being delighted in Him, not extolling Him, then it reflects poorly on Him and His world because we bear His name. Therefore, with the psalmist, we can pray, O oh God, for your own namesake, come, revive us, cause us to live, bring us back to life. This is a powerful, powerful argument to use in prayer. God has so ordered his world that his honor, his glory is wedded to the welfare of his people. Sometimes, have you ever felt like this? Like, well, I know what would most glorify God. i got to do this. But, boy, this would really be better. This would be better for me if I did this. Because X, Y, Z, these things would happen. And those I know are good things. But I, I know that this is what glorifies God. Whenever you find yourself in that kind of dilemma, you can be sure of this. You're not thinking rightly. You're not seeing it the way that it ought to be seen. Why? Because God has wed his glory to our welfare. What most glorifies God is what is best for us as his people. And what is best for me as his child is what will most glorify him. And so when I sense the dilemma being between what is best for me and what will glorify him, I need to just keep going back and thinking better about the situation until I realize, no, wait a minute, what will most glorify him will be better for me. And by faith, if I see the pathway that glorifies him, I want to pursue it knowing that even if I fall flat on my face, yep. that's going to be best for me because that's the way God rules his world. Psalm 67 uses this type of logic in praying in verses 1 and 2. It says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Why? So that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Isn't that interesting? Bless us, God. Doesn't that sound selfish? Make your face shine upon us. Why? So that you might be known throughout all the nations. God's glory is bound up in his people's welfare. God's mercy is being pled in this psalm. The, the psalmist is asking the Lord to display his covenant faithfulness. We see this in the ways 
that he addresses this prayer to God. In verse 4, he's the God of our salvation. The God who redeemed his people out of Egypt. The God who made them his people. Who adopted them and saved them. And then the very title that he uses in addressing God. Lord. It may be written in all caps in your English Bibles. And that is a representation of the covenant name of God. Yahweh. That name which says I am that I am. The name that he revealed to Moses when Moses said, Who shall I say has sent me? I am that I am has sent you. The ever-present, the self-consistent, self-existent one, the living God. This is the name that reminds them of his covenant promise to be their God, to never leave them nor forsake them. This is the name by which God pledges himself to be the God of his people and pledges that they will always be his people as their God. And then in the ESV, that phrase, steadfast love, which in older English translations is rendered mercy. Some of you may know this Hebrew word, it's hesed. It's that word that refers to the loyal faithfulness, kindness, and devotion of God. That pledge of love that is steadfast, that is based not upon the performance of the people who receive it, but it is based upon a relationship, an eternal relationship. This is God's covenant love for his people. It's unbreakable. It's unshakable. So the psalmist, in effect, is saying, oh, Yahweh, we know you faithful we know you love us we know you've made great promises to us but as we look around it doesn't feel like those things are true will you not revive us again will you not restore us show us your steadfast love grant us your salvation in many ways it's remarkable that old testament saints could pray this boldly to god he had revealed himself to them as his, them being his people. He'd revealed himself to them as being their loving, covenant-keeping God. He'd pledged himself to them. He'd made great promises to them. But the greatest of the promises that God had made to his old covenant people had not yet been fulfilled when this psalm was penned. The promise of a Savior who had come into the world to take the place of his people and bear their sins away once and for all, the, the Savior who would be that suffering servant of God, by whose stripes his people would be healed, that promise was still far away. That promise was only fulfilled in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's by his obedience and sacrificial death that Christ has accomplished salvation for all who trust in him. We who live on this side of the life and death of Christ have far greater reason to pray this kind of prayer with confidence than what we see in the Old Testament era because we see the fulfillment of these promises. And all of the promises that yet await to be fulfilled have been guaranteed by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no doubt that they will be fulfilled. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That kind of assurance sets us free to plead with God, to just pour our hearts out to God. Father, you've given us these promises. They're true. But we look around and we see you not going out with our armies anymore. We see your people have become a byword in this society. We see your people spiritually lethargic. We find living for you to be drudgery. Will you not come and revive us again? The great theologian of revival, Jonathan Edwards, in his book, Thoughts on Revival, wrote this. It is God's will that the prayers of his saints should be one great and principal means of carrying on the designs of Christ's kingdom in the world. When God has very great things to accomplish in his church, it is his will that there should precede it the extraordinary prayers of his people, as is manifest in Ezekiel 36, 37, which says, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do for them. And it is revealed that when God is about to do great things for his church, he will begin by remarkably pouring out the spirit of grace and supplication. Oh, may that be what God is doing today. But whether we live to see him revive his work or not, there will be great benefit, great spiritual benefit for his people to feel the desperation of our need and to unite together, to plead with him, to come and do what only he can do. We have all of the arguments we need in the Bible. Looking at things realistically, remembering what he has done, honestly assessing where we are, and then dealing with him. Oh God, come, come, revive your work in the midst of these years. Let's pray together. Father, it is our desire to see you work, to come, and to do what only you can do. We do not want to go on marking time. We don't want to be satisfied to live at half speed, half awake. We can say with the psalmist that our ears have heard and our fathers have told us of great things you did in their day. How you scattered their enemies, but them you planted, and it wasn't their strength, their might, that won the victory. But it was you, because you favored them. You made bare your mighty right arm. Oh God, would you not be pleased to do it again in our day? Would you not come and awaken us? Come, restore and renew us. Do it for your name's sake. Do it so that the nations will come to know that you and you alone are God and that Jesus Christ is the only Savior that this world has. Hear our prayers, for we bring them to you in and through your Son, our Lord and Savior, even Jesus. Amen.